Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have sent your joy to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we get to gather together and celebrate him this morning. And I pray, O oh God, that as you speak to us through your word, that you give us hearts that rejoice in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Actually, before you are seated, I'm going to be this guy. I love our German culture. Um, can everyone just move up a few rows before you sit down so that we can uh, pretend that we love each other and be closer to each other? Don't be shy. Well, thank you for moving in closer. It's good to feel and be closer to you. Um, and thanks for not being as German as maybe we naturally are. This morning is our fourth Sunday in Advent. And if you ask my two-year-old nephew, what is the purpose of Advent? He will say, to prepare our hearts for candy. And he's really cute. But we actually celebrate Advent with the purpose of looking back to the first coming of Christ as we prepare for the second coming of Christ. And this morning we are in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. If you do not have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Um, our strike team will come down and they'll hand one out to you. A few weeks ago, we learned that God had answered the prayers of a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and he helped them miraculously conceive a child. And this conception was miraculous because Elizabeth was old and she was barren. And when God had promised a child to Zechariah, Zechariah did not believe God, and so God disciplined Zechariah and made him unable to speak. And at this point, as we come into the text today, Zechariah has been unable to speak for at least 10 months. And our passage today is going to begin with the birth of this promised child to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. I'm going to read all the way through verse 80. <coughs> now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, 
none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's holy word that cannot and does not fail. A sunrise is one of the most beautiful scenes to look at. How many of you have gotten up early just to go watch a sunrise? I know I have. When you watch a sunrise, you see the light come up out of the horizon, reflecting shades of orange and red and pink in the sky. You feel the peace and the quiet of the new day that is dawning, for the night has gone and the day is here. And what's amazing about the sunrise is that it's not actually the sun that is rising. The earth is actually rotating so that our view of the sun is rising. In other words, the sun is always shining. The sun is always shining. And we may not always see it because there could be clouds in the sky or it could be nighttime, but the sun is always shining. When it's dark in Fargo-Moorhead, it's daytime in India. And even when it's night out, we can still see the sun most of the time reflecting off the moon. The sun is always shining. In the same way, God is always faithful. We may not always be able to see it because sometimes darkness seems to overshadow us. We may not always believe it because of the hard things that we're going through. But God is always faithful. Do you ever struggle seeing and believing that God is faithful? God is always faithful. The sun is always shining. And therefore, we always have reason to rejoice. Our passage this morning begins by telling us that it was now time for Elizabeth to give birth. 
And the old lady who used to be barren had given birth to a son. The Lord had shown great mercy to Elizabeth. And all of her neighbors and her relatives, they came and they rejoiced with her. It was custom at that time for when people had major life events like a birth, for relatives and neighbors to come and celebrate with the people who are celebrating a major life event. And in this case, they probably celebrated with Elizabeth and with Zechariah for eight days. They rejoiced with her for eight days. I have struggle, I struggle rejoicing with somebody for more than eight minutes. But this is a great example of Paul's command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we have opportunities to rejoice with others almost every single day. God is truly showing great mercy to people here at River City Church. In the last few weeks, as a church, we have had people who have shared news of conception. We have had people who have given birth. We have had weddings. Yesterday we had a wedding here. We have had um, people graduating. We have many, many things for which we can rejoice with one another. But it can be hard to truly celebrate the birth of a child when you remain childless year after year. It can be hard to rejoice at someone's wedding when you feel trapped in unwelcomed singleness. It can be hard to celebrate someone when they've graduated when you haven't graduated yourself. But even when it's hard, we can truly rejoice because God is working in the lives of his people. That includes us, and that includes our neighbors. God tells us in his word that he is working in our lives and our friends' lives for our good and for his glory. He is always faithful, and therefore we always have reason to rejoice with others. On top of this, we can rejoice because in the body of Christ, we are united to Christ, and we are also united to one another. And what that means is when God blesses a fellow member of his church, he's actually blessing you. This is an area where Chick-fil-A gets it exactly right. If you go to Chick-fil-A and you order a number one with no pickles and a large fries and you got to get the Chick-fil-A sauce and then you go and sit down and then you get your food about 14 seconds later and you say, thank you, what do they say? They say, it's my pleasure. It is their pleasure to serve us. It is their joy for us to enjoy our food. And in the same way in the body of Christ, we are to find joy in the joy of others. We are to rejoice in the celebration of others. And we can do this because God is working great things in our lives and in their lives. And we can do this because the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ is actually our joy. What would it look like if we found joy in others, if we truly rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Now, as a side note, this does not mean that there is no room for weeping or grieving in the Christian life. There are definitely times where we need to weep and we need to grieve for ourselves and with others. But what rejoicing with others means is that our hope is not in ourselves. 
Our hope is not in our circumstances or our suffering, but our hope is in Christ. And because our hope is in Christ, we can truly rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, the passage continues with the child's circumcision and his naming on the eighth day. And the neighbors and the relatives, they were expecting them to name their child Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth broke in there and said that his name is going to be John. And the people didn't understand, why are they going to name him John? None of their relatives are named John. So they went to Zechariah to ask him what he wanted the child to be named. And Zechariah was mute, we know that, but Zechariah was probably deaf as well because they had to make signs to him to ask him what he wanted the child to be named. And so Zechariah took a tablet, and this is not like an electronic tablet like an iPad, but it was probably a small wooden board coated with wax, and without hearing Elizabeth's response that his name should be John, he wrote on there, his name is John. The name John means that God is merciful. And Zechariah naming his son John means that he now believes that what God promised him, so much so that he obeyed. And when everyone saw what Zechariah wrote, they were all astonished. And immediately, Zechariah was able to speak and he blessed God After being deaf and mute for at least 10 months, the first thing that he does is rejoice. He praises God for the great mercy that has been shown to them. God answers his prayers and given him a son who will prepare the way for the coming of the promised king. God is always faithful, and this is true reason to rejoice. But maybe you're like me. If I was Zechariah, I would have really struggled to rejoice. God made him deaf and mute for at least 10 months. We don't know. It could have been longer. But for me, yes, there can be all of these great things going on. God can be working and showing his mercy all over the place, even in my life. But I can get so focused on myself and my own suffering. I can get so caught up in my challenging circumstances that I forget that God is always faithful and that in Christ, he's working everything for my good. Do you ever struggle focusing on your suffering instead of focusing on Christ? My friends, let me lovingly encourage you to fix your hearts and your minds on Christ. Because in Christ, we have the only true, real reason to rejoice. Rejoice by looking to Christ, by reading his word, by praying to him. Rejoice by remembering that God is always faithful. Rejoice by remembering that the sun is always shining. Now when Zechariah praised God, everyone was filled with fear. And this is not the first time that God had made someone mute and then opened their mouth to prophesy. In Ezekiel 29, God promised the prophet Ezekiel that he will make him mute and then he will give him a voice and a message so that all will know that he alone is God. And this is what's happening here. 
God's mercy is on display in Zechariah so that all may know that he alone is God. He alone can close ears and mouths and wombs because he is all-powerful. And he alone can open ears and mouths and wombs because he is merciful. And as Pastor Jake preached last week, the only proper response to who God is is awe. It is to stand in a terrified joy of the King of Kings. Now I want you to put your imagination caps on here for a moment. And I want you to imagine that you are standing in a field. And as you're standing in the field, you see this giant roaring lion come charging after you. And the closer he gets, the more terrified that you get. And he gets closer and he gets closer and you get more and more scared. All of a sudden, this giant lion jumps over the top of you to tackle a leopard who is sneaking up behind you and trying to kill you. Could you imagine the terror of seeing a lion come right at you and then the joy knowing that that lion saved your life? It's a terrified joy. This is what it is like to stand in awe of Christ. It is a terrified joy. It's a fearful joy. And what you truly put your joy in will overflow from you and be shared with others. When Zechariah blessed God, a fearful joy fell on everyone who heard it. And they shared it with everyone in the hill country of Judea. And how could they not? This was an incredible miracle of God. Their rejoicing overflowed from their hearts to everyone around them, like a cup that is being overflowed with water. True rejoicing in Christ will overflow into sharing it with others. If a lion actually saved you from a leopard, wouldn't you want to share that with others? If Jesus Christ truly saved you from the wrath of God, wouldn't you want to share that with others? True rejoicing in Christ will overflow into sharing it with others. So let me encourage you to rejoice in Christ by telling others about it. Not out of guilt, but out of, as an overflow of true joy in Him. Because what goes deepest to the heart will go widest to the world. Now the birth of John was spread to all the hill country of Judea, and everyone wondered, what then will this child be? And so Zechariah, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he answered that question with his prophecy in verses 68 through 79. But before he directly answers the question, he begins with eight verses of passionate rejoicing in God. Now his rejoicing is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. I counted 105 Old Testament quotes, allusions, or cross-references. And this morning we're going to go through every single one of them. <laughs> I wish, I wish. But there is one overarching Old Testament theme that would be helpful for us to understand, and that is the theme of the first exodus and the second exodus. The first exodus was God's redemption of his people from their slavery to the Egyptians. 
and it takes place in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And in Exodus 2.24, God tells us that the reason that he is redeeming his people is because he is faithful to his covenantal promises. And in Exodus 7, he says that the Lord wants to redeem his people so that they can go and serve him. And so he saved his people through the Passover meal and by parting the Red Sea so that they could go through it on dry ground. And then the Lord killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians and then he destroyed the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And the first Exodus proclaimed that the Lord is faithful to save and he is faithful to judge. Those always go together. But again, put on your thinking caps, your imagination caps for a moment. Imagine being an Israelite. In the night, there was chaos because the powerful Egyptians were chasing after you and trying to kill you. And you were stuck between this huge army and this giant sea called the Red Sea. In this darkness, there was dread. But God opened the Red Sea, he redeemed you, he allowed you to safely cross, and he crashed that Red Sea on the Egyptians. And after that happened, it was morning. After that happened, the sun rose. Can you imagine that glorious and peaceful sunrise over the Red Sea? It would be absolutely majestic. There was peace in this morning because God saved his people and he destroyed their enemies. And this is where the idea actually comes from, that his mercies are new every morning. Now, that's the first exodus, and the rest of the Old Testament looks back over and over and over again to the first exodus to show that God is always faithful to save and he is always faithful to judge. And the rest of the Old Testament again and again and again and again promises a second exodus where God will fully save his people and where God will fully destroy his enemies. So keep those two things in mind. And also just as a quick side note before we dive into Zechariah's prophecy, this is a really difficult passage, but Zechariah is looking forward to the first coming of Christ. And where we sit today, after the cross of Christ, we, this can apply to us in the same way as we wait for the second coming of Christ. Okay, so let's look at Zechariah's prophecy, beginning in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The idea of God visiting his people is God's presence to save and to judge the transcendent God who created and sustains the universe has come to visit his people. And this is not like us visiting our parents or our grandparents over Christmas. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to live with us. God's not just visiting, he is moving in. And God took on flesh forever in the person of Christ to be with and to redeem his people. And the Lord God has raised up a horn of salvation for his people. A horn is a symbol of power and strength and might. Like if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings 
and you have those giant elephants with the huge tusks, and they swing them back and forth, and they take out 20 people at a time. That's the imagery that's going on here. And it is the power of God, and it is working for our salvation. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. That is the same power that brings our dead hearts to life. And that is the same power that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And that is the same power that one day will bring us into the new creation. Now, God's salvation is not only powerful, it is faithful. It has been spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old. God has always been faithful to his word. He has always been faithful to his covenant. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of all of his covenantal promises to save and to judge. Jesus Christ has saved us from our enemy of sin by bearing the judgment that we deserve on the cross. He has redeemed us and freed us from the slavery of our sin. And he has conquered our greatest enemies through the power of his resurrection. And God has always been faithful to save so that we can serve him. He saved the Israelites in the first exodus so that they could go and serve him. And he saves us so that we can go and serve him without fear of our enemies. And this is an important point. We have not been saved so that we can serve ourselves. We have not been saved so that God can serve us. We have been saved so that we can serve God. We have been saved so that we can glorify God in everything that we do. Now, Zechariah lived in a day where the Israelites were deeply oppressed by the, by the Romans. They were very hostile towards them. And we live in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. Many of you could lose your job for talking about Christ at the workplace. Many of you have strained relationships with friends and family members because of your relationship with Christ. It can be hard to serve Jesus Christ. But let me encourage you to serve Christ without fear because God is always faithful to his promises. Just as the sun is always shining, God will always be faithful to save everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And he will always be faithful to pour out his wrath on everyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. And his wrath will destroy the faithless like the warm sun melts the snow. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If not, I beg you for the sake of your soul to turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ by faith. But if you are here this morning and you do trust in Christ, let me lovingly encourage you to serve God by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those around you. Because nothing less than their eternal souls are at stake. God's faithfulness is the center of Zechariah's praise to God at the beginning of his prophecy. And then finally, in verse 76, he gets to answering the question about who this child 
is going to be. And he says, John is going to be the prophet of the Most High God, and he has come to prepare his ways. So John is a prophet, and that means that he is a messenger sent by God to deliver God's message. And almost always, the prophet's message is directly tied to God's covenantal promises to save and to judge. And John's main prophetic task is to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming in the person of Jesus, who is at the same time king. And John is a messenger or a herald of King Jesus. Now, in Old Testament times, the king would send a herald beforehand to wherever he was going. And this herald would announce the arrival of the king. And he would say, hey, you need to get prepared because the king is coming. You need to straighten up your house. You need to get your act together because you do not want to be surprised when the king comes. So uh, the king sending a herald was an act of mercy on behalf of the king. And the herald comes to prepare the way for the king so that the people can be ready for the king to visit. Now for us, we are waiting for the king to come again. And the way that we prepare for the second coming of Christ is repentance. Because when King Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a baby. He's coming as the judge of the universe. And this is why John has been tasked to give the knowledge of God's salvation. That God in his mercy has provided a way through Jesus Christ to be forgiven of our sins. Do you believe this? Are you prepared for the king to come back? And when he comes, the passage says that the sunrise will visit us from on high. The sunrise of the second exodus is a picture of God's eternal justice that will be poured out on his enemies like the Red Sea was poured out onto the Egyptians. When King Jesus comes back, everyone who does not believe in him will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire where there will be only eternal weeping. But for everyone in Christ, this imagery of the sunrise pictures God's eternal restoration in the new creation. There will be light for those in darkness, not because the sun will always be shining, but because the glory of God shining in the face of Christ Jesus will be our light. And we will be in the immediate presence of God and there will only be complete grace and peace and life. Remember the sunrise over the Red Sea? The peace that the Israelites felt that morning is nothing compared to the peace of the second exodus. It will be the peace of an eternal sunrise because there will be no more darkness. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death or mourning or crying anymore. There will be no more reasons not to rejoice in Christ because there will only be rejoicing and there will only be peace and rest and joy and light because the Son of God will be eternally shining. Amen? My friends, the King is coming. 
And that's why we don't celebrate Advent to prepare our hearts for candy or to prepare our hearts even for presents. We celebrate Advent so that we can look back to the first coming of Christ as we wait for Him to come again. Are you prepared for Him to come again? If you are, I pray that your heart overflows with rejoicing in Christ that spills into every relationship that you have. Because no matter what you go through, no matter how dark it may seem, God is always faithful, the sun is always shining, and we always have reason to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the sunrise and the truth that the sun is always shining and how it points to an even greater reality that you are always faithful to your promises. I pray for this truth to dive deep into our hearts this morning, to give us hearts that truly rejoice in you, and I pray for that true rejoicing to overflow into sharing that joy, and that love with others. Be with us now as we celebrate and prepare for your second coming. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.